0: Thank you, everybody. It is um, with great pleasure that we accepted the Combat for Truth invitation, uh, which uh, I had originally uh, suggested to uh, Jake Liberto be settled with a an arm wrestle. But unfortunately, he, um, my, is it fair to say, screamed like a little girl and said, uh, no, Canadian uh, noodle arms are too much of a match for me. But we're going to have a conversation tonight about... U.S. foreign policy, uh, a a flower of virtue and goodness in the world or Satan's anus squatting over the planet. We are trying to try and sort that out once and for all. We had a brief run by on uh, the late, well, I guess still present, but late on RTV, uh, Adam versus the man. And so I'm going to start off with a um, a little sort of introductory speech, which will go on for about 58 and a half minutes. We're then going to take a 90 second commercial and then... Oh, man, we're going to be out of time. Anyway, (laughs) we're going to try and do our best. So um, U.S. foreign policy is interesting. I mean, the first thing that's interesting about the concept is that we can somehow divide domestic policy and foreign policy into two different things, which, of course, they're really not. Uh, A foreign policy can provoke blowback. Blowback provokes uh, expansion in the size and power of the state. Uh, We have uh, increases in domestic policies such as um, uh, uh, increases in in tariffs and controls and taxes and health and safety regulations on domestic companies which provoke tariff wars against other countries who can then overcompete or compete against the U.S. industrial machine fairly well. So I just really wanted to point out there's not a clear division between foreign policy and domestic policy. Now, I'm going to approach this, there's sort of, uh, I wanna put uh, uh, Jake's um, uh, argument ahead of him, but there's usually two ways you approach foreign policy. One is a cold-eyed, pragmatic, by God, man, we have to live in the real world, and to live in the real world, we have to deal with real problems, and we can't just go sailing off in this idealistic uh, (laughs) fairyland rainbow cruise of uh, uh, wouldn't it be great if everyone were nice, kumbaya, why can't we all just get along? And uh, the other approach, of course, is to say, look, we, we have to organize how we live and, and, and the decisions that we make according to some kind of moral principles. And if we don't, that's fine. Then we're just cold-eyed pragmatists and we should forget about uh, being the shining city on the hill. We should forget about being uh, having American exceptionalism. We should forget about pretending that we're trying to bring peace and virtue and democracy to the world and just say, well... Uh, Different colored people have resources that we want, so let's move them aside, nicely if we can, not so nicely if we can't, and get their resources. So, the way that I would approach it, or the way that I've approached it in the past, is to say something like this. Look, there are two foundational principles to any moral system. The non-aggression principle, thou shalt not initiate force against others, and a respect for property rights. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. Because we own ourselves, we shouldn't have uh, aggression against us. Now, the state, the government, as an entity, is a direct violation of these two principles. This is the government, by definition, is that monopoly of people who can initiate force against others in a given geographical area through through taxes, through regulations, through laws, through imprisonment, and so on. It is the foundation of the capacity for foreign policy is the right and power to initiate force against your own citizens through debt, through taxes, through regulations, through law. And so, to argue that, benef- uh, that benevolent effects can come out of the initiation of force against your own citizens, which is used to fund the military-industrial complex, is used to fund foreign aid, foreign policy, and so on, is to say that virtue can come from immorality. I, I don't think that it can. I think that you can get brief, surprising squirts of virtue, so to speak, from you know uh, pounding somebody in the head, but it's really not a long-term and sustainable position. So I'm going to give you just one or two examples of ways in which I think that U.S. foreign foreign policy has produced some pretty unmitigated disasters. And then I'm going to um, bend over and be schooled by a good friend, Jake. So the first is Woodrow Wilson, as I'm sure we're all aware, entered into World War I or sorry, entered into his presidency before World War I with the promise to not spend American blood and treasure on European wars. Uh, of course, by 1917, that had all gone by the wayside, and the U.S. sent over hundreds of thousands of troops into Western Europe on the side of the Allies against the um, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians and all the others. And what happened? Well, this was the foundational catastrophe of the 20th century, this uh, foreign policy intervention. There are a number of historians who've run this through the alternate reality processor, and, and I think with some reasonable credibility. The extreme likelihood seems to be that if the U.S. had not gotten involved in World War I, then the Germans uh, and the Allies would have reached a kind of exhausted detente. They were all running out of young men, they were all running out of money, they were all running out of things to shell. So they would have basically been exhausted and they would have just gone back home to where... They started from and I think that Europe would have learned a very powerful and important lesson about war and it would be would have been unlikely to occur again. Certainly not as quickly as it did again, with the second world war when the US came plowing in what happened was the allies began to look for the decisive smackdown victory. Unconditional surrender which had never really been part of of military history in, in Europe before became the word of the day and that happened because the US got involved. Now when the US got involved. Germany of course found itself fighting a two-front war and so it sent Lenin through the fin- through Finland to Russia with with arms and with weapons to start the Russian revolution in order to take Russia out of the uh, the eastern front. And so the American involvement in the First World War with a considerable certainty triggered the collapse of Russia from the initial Menshevik approach to some sort of democracy into the totalitarian unbelievably brutal regime of the Bolsheviks, which caused the deaths of 70 million people, and had a strong impact on World War II, and of course created the Cold War, and so a real snowball began to go on that way, which was really catastrophic. Because America uh, entered into the First World War, uh, the Allies were able to impose the brutal Treaty of Versailles on Germany, where Germany would have still been paying, if it had stuck by that treaty, would still have been paying war reparations until the 1980s, truly astounding. Uh, this wrecked the German economy, produced massive resentment, uh, and um, caused well, was really one of the foundational causes for for World War II. So that's a sort of an example, and I'm not, of course, trying to say that anyone in America was like, you know, to, in order to make the world safer democracy, we're going to put up this cover of ethics and virtue, and then we are going to create a nightmarish century of, of, of genocide and, and, and wars and, and, you know, 40 million dead in the Second World War and then a Cold War and, and all of this stuff. But there is the law of unintended consequences. There are dominoes that start rolling. Nobody can predict what is going to happen when you begin using force or initiating force overseas. And so that's one example. Now there are sort of credible estimates that also say that even since World War II, between 20 and 30 million deaths have been caused by U.S., a foreign policy and it's really hard for me to think of a way in which that is justified because of course people in Washington sitting pushing chess pieces around an international board don't really have the right to make the decisions about who should live and who should die in foreign lands that is really up for the people themselves if the people in Iraq want to overthrow Saddam Hussein, then they can take to the streets and do so. If they don't, it's because they would rather live than die in a fight. We don't really get to make that decision for them to the tune of over a million Iraqis who've suffered violent deaths since the invasion of 2003. So... The fruits of immorality tend to be disaster and immorality. And since foreign policy is predicated upon the initiation of force against one's own citizens to gather resources in order to go and have 800 military bases overseas and uh, intervene in, in every country in the known universe, then the fruits of that violence is further. And the last thing that I'll say is that, you know, there's sort of an old, I think, reasonable way to judge the ethics of people. And that is to say that a man who practices virtue some other place than his own home is not really that virtuous a guy so you know someone who is uh, really against domestic abuse and and travels all over the country and then returns home to beat his wife can't really be called having a strong someone who has a strong understanding of virtue because virtue should be practiced within your own home first and, the, of course, the argument has been to make the world safe for democracy, to bring peace and, and order to the world. If that was the case, of course, then America should be dealing with its own problems first and then rushing around to save the rest of the planet uh, elsewhere later. Uh, and, of course, this is not what has been occurring. Uh, as America has expanded its imperial role overseas in a typical late, empire, late Roman Empire fashion, Uh, Injustices and aggressions and debt and imprisonment and violence and and poor education and diminished economic opportunities and general catastrophes all around are increasing with the level of its commitment overseas. Uh, This is exactly what you would expect from the fruits of violence. So it's really hard to say, well America does really, really good stuff overseas when it's doing really, really bad and worsening stuff in its own house. You know, if if, um, you want to go nation-built in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, maybe, maybe politicians could look out the window of the Capitol building and say, hmm, the number one murder capital in America is Washington, D.C. In other words, we are not able to deal with the problems of violence right outside this big rotund (laughs) building, which would give people some hesitation as to whether they're going to be able to pull the magic leaves of, of peace and virtue in a country thousands of miles away whose language and culture they barely understand. So those would be my uh, initial arguments against uh, accepting the principle or the premise that U.S. foreign policy has been a benevolent force in the world, and um, I will now turn it over to you.
1: Well, thanks, Stefan. Uh, just to, again, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, well, a couple of things. Uh, first off, asking whether U.S. foreign policy has been uh, a problem or has it been is a question in itself. But asking if it has been virtuous. I would argue that um, no form of the human condition can be um, virtuous. I mean, we, uh, the world is broken. People are broken. Nothing is perfect. Trying to find uh, perfection in anything on this planet is, um, you know, it's, it's like trying to find uh, gold inside, you know, um, I don't know, water. It's impossible. So, so has there been problems with U.S. foreign policy? Certainly there has been. Ah, uh, the question should be: Is U.S. foreign policy, as you said, since say Woodrow Wilson, has the benefits of it been better with U.S. foreign policy as it's been conducted than if it hadn't been? For instance, how do we justify uh, how do or how do we acknowledge the atrocities going on in World War II with with Adolf Hitler and not the U.S. not do something? I mean, we all know that the United States didn't go into World War II. Because the atrocities committed by Hitler. However, had the US not gone in, uh, the consequences could have been far worse than had we not gone in. So, trying to find a perfect sol- solution to, to this is um, impossible. So, so, I think a better question would be is the world better off with the United States conducting its behavior since, say, Woodrow Wilson's era than without it? And I would say, Absolutely, the world is better off with the United States than without it, and I think most people would agree with that. Saying of oh, just the the you know the United States is this total force of evil is I don't think it's just being honest. Now I, I want to make a point on two things which related to what you made, starting about U.S. interventions, U.S. interventions inside um, the world since Woodrow Wilson's era. Are a lot are due to a lot of factors that the United States was not in control of. For instance, there was competing empires um, at the at the dawn of the twentieth century. There was the German Empire, there was Austrian-Hungarian Empire, the British Empire, and at all of this time, these empires were competing against each other. World War One was essentially uh, figuring out who was going to be the boss of this this condition where your Western Europe, had competing empires. It was more about that than it was about the U.S. being a bad force of evil. World um, now did the Treaty of Versailles was it was it problematic? Absolutely. The Treaty of Versailles was there were so many failures that we could go on and on and on about the Treaty of Versailles. However, in that situation, what do you do? I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I mean, what what's what's the world supposed to do? Woodrow Wilson was trying to put up a, a put together a strategic alliance to prevent further wars. And you can say, with the exception of World War II, which was indeed a terrible, terrible war, NATO has been relatively a good thing for Western Europe keeping the peace uh, amongst these former competing empires. NATO is one of the one of the most um, uh, collegial military alliances in the history of the world, I think, that has prevented another World War II like. Now granted, we had the Cold War. Um, and there were some problems with that, but NATO and those alliances prevented Western Europe from going to war against each other, and that was a good thing. So I think that is there problems with U.S. foreign policy? Certainly. We shouldn't be trying to find virtue in it because statecraft is not a moral exercise. However, there are more, pl- pl- pro- uh, there are more benefits to U.S. foreign policy, I think, than there would be um, negatives. I'm interested to hear what you have responded.
0: Okay, uh, I'll start from the end and and go backwards. You said that NATO prevented Western Europe from going to war against each other. I don't believe that there was ever a time when, say, Germany and France, since the Second World War, were eyeing each other with weapons. Uh, I don't believe that it had anything to do with the military alliance. Um, the, The fundamental reality seems to be, once you get nuclear weapons, you seem to become curiously immune from invasion. Because, of course, once you have nuclear weapons, whoever is invading, you can turn the ruling class into puddles of glass. And so um, I think that had a lot to do with, with that. Um, now, I never said, of course, that the U.S. was total evil or that uh, that uh, all foreign policy, you know, I said that there were positive things that came out of it. So uh, I'm not saying that the absence of, of uh, an interventionist foreign policy produces nothing but virtue or that the presence of it produces nothing but evil. I really just wanted to be to be clear on that. Now, when you say that uh, the atrocities of Hitler drew uh, the uh, U.S. into World War II... No, um,
1: oh, I said, correction, I, no, correction, I said oh, sorry. that they did not, yes, that there's there no reason, yeah.
0: Well, of course, uh, that the, the Nazi empire was going to fall, and the U.S. had very little to do. I mean, of course, everybody focuses, you see Saving Private Ryan and Patton, and you see, aha, it's the the D-Day landings that brought it all down. Uh, That's not true. The vast majority of the German losses happened on the Eastern Front uh, throughout 1942 and 1943, 1944 uh, with the Russians. And uh, the Russians spent like 20 million soldiers or some god-awful amount like that, 10 million soldiers, uh, defeating the the Germans. So it really had a lot more to do with that uh, than it did to do with what the uh, Allies were doing. The war was going to end uh, with or without the U.S. In, intervention. Now, that's not to say the U.S. intervention was was unimportant, but it was not the key, uh, the key deciding factor. And of course, you can always find a, pl- a place in time where violence or, or, or the initiation of force can seem to do good. Sure, but what I'm talking about is let's roll the clock back and say, well, why was there a Hitler to begin with? And there's strong, credible arguments which says, well, it was R- Woodrow Wilson breaking the interventionist policy uh, and which he, had, of course, committed to uh, to his voters, and then starting the ball rolling to give the unjust Allied victory over the uh, the Axis powers in in World War One, that that was what started the ball rolling. That led to World War Two. So uh, I don't think it's a good argument to say because a prior intervention required or later intervention, the later intervention was good, and you sort of said, well, what are you supposed to do? Well, this is the this is the track, this is the trap, this is the trick, this is the real challenge, which is. You have to avoid the temptation to break moral rules. I mean, that's the real challenge. If you want to be a virtuous society, you have to resist the temptation to break fundamental moral rules, to initiate force against your own citizens, to initiate force against others. Yeah, if you initiate force against your own citizens through taxation and through the draft, yeah, you can probably get some good things coming out of it. In some ways, for sure, but... You've still broken a fundamental moral rule and what happens from that situation is you tend to see this snowballing which has continued on from there where the growth of injustice overseas is matched by the growth of injustice domestically and so because you have a, I mean there's this sort of rotation between internal and external affairs because you have a war on drugs, you have an incentive to go and intervene in Mexico you have an incentive to go and intervene as the Russians tried to in the poppy fields of Afghanistan you have this incentive to go into Nicaragua and and Costa Rica and Honduras and all these other countries and you know firebomb their their um, crops and so on and and this then creates a swarm of people who want to come in domestically which raises tensions about people coming over the border uh, which you know so it all just continues to snowball there's no human being who's wise enough to know even what the stock price of Apple is going to be about 20 minutes from now, let alone what domino, dominoes am I setting in place when I begin to do these, uh, these kinds of interventions that occur. And when you sort of look at the US and you realize just how, fl- how blind it's flying, and this is not particular to the US, I mean, foreign policy is just another government program, so it's common to all of these institutionalized hierarchies, I mean, the US didn't even have a clue that the Soviet empire was about to fall in the 80s, didn't have a clue. Uh, in fact, thought that it was stronger than ever and was urging for increased armaments and was urging, urging for uh, increases in nuclear weapons because the Soviet empire was so strong and, you know, four days later it blew over in a stiff breeze. And so if the U.S. is not even able to see the end of its traditional enemy, it's if it's flying so blind in something as massive and important and heavily invested in billions of dollars, trillions of dollars spent trying to understand the, the Soviet system and, and fighting the Soviet system, if they had no clue... That it was about to fall, then how on earth could we imagine that they could do any good when they're flying that blind?
1: So, uh, um, you're just you're just incorrect when you saying the U.S. didn't know that the uh, Soviet Union was about to fall. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know what, what U.S. policymakers that you that you interact with or, or things that you read about what was take place in the 1980s. But I'll tell you that. Um, I mean. I, I've spent I've spent a lot of time interviewing um, senior statesmen, Zygmunt Breszinski. I've I've interviewed Henry Kissinger. I've, I mean the big globalists, you know, whatever. Um, the United States was very aware that the that the Soviet Union uh, was was at a tipping point, especially specifically looking at what it was doing in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, and so the United States was 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 what we were unprepared for was what would be the fallout of, if there wasn't a Soviet Union in the world as dominant as it had been during the Cold War. We knew that it was going to, the United States knew that the Soviet Union would fall, we just weren't prepared for what would happen when it fell. So, and so there's and there, there's a real big difference here. I'm actually, I don't understand stuff, and I, I don't understand the anarchist position when it comes to, um, the state and it comes to uh... this monopoly of force question is what do you do when you don't have a government because we've tried this experiment in human history before when there's not when there's not government then you get anarchy and anarchy does not bode well for the average citizen anarchy is uh... tribalism it's uh... ethnic wars it's uh... all sorts of um, political instability and also just generally uh... It doesn't go well. I mean, when you when you don't have governments, you oftentimes you have uh, huge elements of famine. Now, granted, even with governments, you can't have famine. But in uh, capitalistic uh, liberal democracies, uh, society is better off than without any government. So, I mean, I would be like the interesting what what is what is what is the what is the problem with say uh, a minimal government? I'd like to hear your, your, your uh, remarks, and then I'll give um, sort of my commentary uh, in response.
0: Okay, uh, sure. Well, uh, this is a common misconception, um, which can be easily remedied by checking with the dictionary. But I mean, because everybody thinks they know what anarchy is, then they, uh, they go with the common misconception. Uh, anarchy means without rulers. It doesn't mean without the state. Uh, it, it's the state is just one manifestation of rulers. Uh, uh, tribal warlords are another manifestation of rulers. Um, uh, you can have uh, a priestly class. This is another manifestation of rulers, such as in ancient Egypt. So the uh, the, the our concept of anarchy simply means a society where. There is a fundamental recognition that all human beings are created equal and that all should have the same rights. In other words, we should not grant a monopoly of the use of force, which is a violation of a general moral rule that the entire population is supposed to follow, to a particular small group of individuals. Hand them all the guns in the world, give them all the power in the world, uh, or even just a small amount of power, but still they have that monopoly of power uh, and expect anything good to happen and it uh, astonishes me that people who uh, know the history of america can still talk about something called a small government and you had the greatest aggregation of geniuses political economic social military geniuses i would argue in the 18th century on the 13 colonies called uh, the american uh, experiment and they got together they rubbed all of their giant (laughs) uh, white brains together and with the exclusion of kids and women and, and blacks and other minorities, they create, tried to create a society of general equality for middle class and up white people. And they tried to create a system to engineer a system, so they claimed, that was going to be a small government and was going to stay a small government. And that small government has, in a relatively short period of time, given the you know 10,000 year span of human history, has grown into the very largest government that could be conceived of. That that. That would be unimaginably powerful to, to these people who were designing it. This should give everybody some significant pause. If you look at the small size of the English state uh, in the sort of 17th and 18th century prior to the empire, it, is, it also grew into a massive government uh, and a massive empire that spanned the entire planet. Small governments grow into large governments because small governments create economic opportunity because they uh, don't tax that much, they don't interfere with trade that much, and this creates massive amounts of wealth. And then the governments go, "Mm, (laughs) mmm, tasty, tasty wealth, how lovely. And so they start to tax and tax more. And so the greater freedoms that you start with, the greater government that you end up with and that's the problem Uh, the idea of minarchism is simply a slippery slope to the largest government that can be imagined because once you have all that wealth taxes can go up and that wealth and the growing increase in that wealth can be used as collateral for debt and debt is the final damaging drug of a democratic republic because it allows people to get stuff seemingly for free it allows politicians to bribe everyone on the planet and the costs that then pass forward into the generations, and there's just no way to prevent that stuff. So I think that's the the basic argument in a nutshell. Well, it's my basic argument. I shouldn't say it's the. It's mine.
1: Fair enough. Well, I mean, I just I I, I hear this oftentimes by anarchists that I meet, and you know, I, I, somebody has a total right to choose to, to reject government of all costs. Like, fair enough. The problem is is that we live in a we live in a world that benefits from government. So. Uh, you're in many ways um, you enjoy the freedom of free speech I enjoy the freedom of speech because the government allows us to the government allows us uh, not allows us but protects us um, in some ways if we in, in you, you, you made a comment that monarchism um, uh, leads to sort of a big state well anarchism leads to a state anyways in general as well uh, in, in anarchic societies um, you get um, tribal lords, you get leadership because that's how society operates. Um, e- human beings want to be organized. Human beings want to be in community with other people, generally by our nature. Uh, one of the things that we can do uh, is have a democratic process, have a dialogue, so that the best form of say, community can, can happen through dialogue and through discussion. That's the whole idea of, de- of democracy. The opposite of anarchism doesn't necessarily mean totalitarianism. The opposite of anarchism can be some form of statism, which uh, is which that um, uh, people have can participate with government, can participate in uh, the discussion and development of society. And you know, when you, you raise the point about uh, the British Empire and the the monumental state that was developed at that point certainly Uh, the world today is 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 much larger than it has ever been i mean we're our companies think we're soon to be at nine billion people soon within the next 10 years nine billion people the world never imagined that so so the idea of letting nine billion people just simply live and amongst themselves um doesn't necessarily bode well for the future of our world um there are a lot of things to consider that need to be organized um the, the the looking after the environment, looking after our, 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 our rivers, looking after our national parks, looking after each other. And if you don't have a governmental organizing body that is checked by the people through democracy, in real democracy terms, uh, it's more than likely that um, some forms of organization, either com- companies, corporations, will end up exploiting our, our planet and destroying it. Uh, I would like to hear your comments on, on the idea of, of the, how the world has changed. Um, I mean, are, would you at least acknowledge that much?
0: I will. Uh, let me just, um, and I don't want to get drawn into this becomes a he said, she said thing, but I just wanted to, to mention, um, and I can post this, uh, I'll ask you to post this on the debate. From a case study from the um, John F. Kennedy School of Government uh, and Harvard University on intelligence and policy, I just want to read you something that uh, because we did have a bit of a disagreement about this and again this isn't going to be conclusive but I just wanted to put the rebuttal forward. Critics contended uh, says this um, article, critics contended that the CIA overstated the strength of the Soviet economy, underestimated the power of Republican independence movements and overestimated the military threat, thereby forcing the US into what some considered an unnecessary arms build up. Stansfield-Turner, head of the CIA from 1977 to 1981, wrote in late 1991 that, quote, We should not gloss over the enormity of the CIA's failure to forecast the magnitude of the Soviet crisis. I never heard a suggestion from the CIA or the intelligence arms of, of the Department of Defense or state that numerous Soviets recognized a growing systemic economic problem. So again, I just, I mean, I know you say you talk to Henry Kissinger, um, however credible that source is, but um, I just wanted to mention that's where I got my facts from. Uh, and again, I, let's move on to what you said. I just want to put that forward. So, it's interesting to me, Jake. Then this, I see this continually all the time, and I think it's very revealing. You were describing a a, a system called uh, a negotiation, a conversation, a, a an organization, a planning, and so on in other words you were describing a voluntary set of interactions but that's not what a government is a government is a group of people with the monopoly right to initiate force against everyone else to try and talk to to try and turn that into like a conversation and a, a, a way of organizing and planning and so on, no. If it's organizing and planning and conversation, then it's voluntary, then it is a statelessness, then it is without rulers. What you're talking about is what I mean when I talk about anarchy, which is to have a conversation about how things should be done in society. But uh, this is what happens is that people say, well, you know, we can have a government where it's voluntary and the citizens restrain things and, and people get together to solve problems and so on. But that's not what a government is. A government is the the monopoly on the initiation of force. Uh, And you can try and say, well, people should find some way to resist this uh, monopoly of force. But the whole point is it is a monopoly of force. And it has uh, all the guns relative to each individual. It has a trained military. It has a police force. It has an entire court system. It has prison guards. It has you name it. And it has tariff collectors and tax collectors. It has massive amounts of... Uh, people who are all trained and willing to use force against their fellow citizens. That is a state. So you have to at least call it by what it actually is rather than use these airy-fairy voluntary terms to describe something that is in its very nature geographically coercive.
1: Well, I mean, running society, I mean, running society, being a citizen um, and interacting with other people is, by definition, finding proximate solutions to insoluble problems. You can never um, totally get along with your neighbor. You can never totally agree with somebody on anything. The government is no different. Um, the government's sort of bigger scale. But what the government can do is provide leadership to get people directed towards something, sometimes for the negative, but sometimes for the good. I'll give you an example. Um, in Sudan, uh, just a couple years ago, there was a big crisis that occurred, and the Office of Transitional Initiatives just sent some money over uh, to put a radio station in so that people could talk to each other. And by allowing people to talk to each other prevented uh, the genocide... I mean, it stopped the genocide to some degree, and it made things get better to a large degree just by simple people being able to talk to each other. So again, trying to find utopia, um, as many anarchist uh, people would would, uh, sort of espouse, trying to find utopia is foolish, trying to... um, criticize the government from being totally um, irrelevant or, you know, the, the monopoly of force, is it really a true description? It's a false definition. Is the government a, a monopoly of force? Sure. But not, also, not always for the bad. Sometimes for the good. And we have, to, we have to get away from this utopian idea that somehow we can live in a society where there's no war, there's no violence. There's, that's always going to be here because that's the state of the human condition.
0: So what you're saying is that the state of the human condition is corrupt and prone to evil, and so what we should do is we should get a a bunch of these same corrupt people and give them all of this power and just hope that it works out really, really well. You don't think that's utopian? Do you think the idea that giving flawed humanity who thirsts for power, who thirsts to get something for nothing, who thirsts to escape the consequences of their actions, that flawed humanity is, is, is fit to be able to take guns, point them at other people, and rule over them? You think that's utopian? I think the idea that you can find flawed humanity, a group of them, put them in power, and then have everything turn out really well, because evil people are never attracted to power, of course. That is utopian, and anarchist is a cold-eyed realist relative to the idealism and derangement of statism.
1: Well, the, the alter- there is an alternative besides anarchism, and there is an alternative besides just trusting the people in Washington or you know Kabul or wherever else. The alternative is a real balance of power checks and balances against each other. The problem with the American political system, uh, as you, you sort of began to touch on, specifically related to foreign policy, is that there is no check and balances. What what the, what we started as, what John Adams uh, put in the Constitution uh, with, within the, the three uh, branches of government, all checking and balancing each other, that is that has slowly increasingly become void and today instead of genuine democracy in the United States we have the Imperial Presidency that's the problem with America but that doesn't necessarily mean that the checks and the balances isn't a good idea in fact the way that we should run society we all need checks and balances if you're married your your check and your balances your significant other if you um, are if you're a child your check and balances your parent if you're in society What prevents you from speeding and killing people um, is the police officers making sure that, hey, you speed, shame on you, here's a speeding ticket, don't, uh, we've done the research and we know that if you go drive too fast, it's more than likely you're going to, you know, kill yourself or somebody else, so let's not do that. Oh, too much government is a problem, but the absence of government creates more problems.
0: Okay, so at least we've accepted that you're talking about the initiation of force. I think that's fantastic. And you also believe that a group with the violent monopoly on force over a geographical area can be checked by people who are pretty much disarmed relative to that group. So you've got one guy in an alley with a gun you got another guy in an alley with nothing maybe in a, a nail file and the guy with the gun is going to be checked by the guy with the nail file individual citizens have no power against the state they have no power against the state they can be martyrs they can be tibetan monks and set themselves on fire but they have no power relative to the state there is no such thing as a check and balance on a monopoly of force now the argument from the voluntarist or the voluntarist perspective is to say we recognize that a balance of power is essential within society, and the way that you create a balance of power is you do not create a monopoly of force. A balance of power means that there are agencies which are competing with each other to provide services, to provide roads, to provide defense, and there are voluntary contracts that you sign with these agencies. You know What is it that creates a balance of power in terms of predation from cell phone providers? It is the fact that you can not go with a cell phone provider you can sign a contract to make sure your price doesn't increase you cannot have a cell phone at all that's what creates a balance of power is voluntary interactions with agencies once you create one agency with all the guns in the world to run everything you don't have a balance of power anymore you don't have a balance of power anymore
1: it's, and it's, you, it's interesting you brought up uh, you brought up uh, the idea of um, independent commerce as a means of check and balancing because you sign a contract your prices don't go up etc uh, in the in the free uh, capitalist economic system, competition amongst companies against service providers is, it drives prices down on, under the, you know, basically, I mean, just general capitalist th- uh, economic theory, and it generally works. And so the, the, in the free market, the, 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 the check and the balance is corporations against each other, and it's the consumers, because if I don't want to use it, I don't have to. Same thing in the government, though. If you don't want to pay taxes or you don't want to participate with it, uh, you don't have to. Um, You can simply go off the reservation and not want anything to do with it. People do that in America all the time.
0: But cell phone companies don't have the power to make me move out of the country if I don't sign a contract with them. Do you see that that's not the same as being free? If I say, you know, Jake, you've got to agree with me on everything or I'm going to move you to some foreign country... Uh, where maybe you don't even speak the language, where, by the way, someone else is just going to tax you anyway. It's not the same to say to an animal in a zoo, hey, you can move to another cage on the other side of the zoo and we'll call that the same as being free. The idea that the government somehow owns the entire country and can order people who don't agree with its violent edicts off the entire country is a totalitarian foundational totalitarian principle, that the government owns everything, and if you don't agree with the government, with those who have the guns, they can march you off into the ocean. That is unjust in the extreme, and a complete violation of personal liberty.
1: Uh, you know, Stefan. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm by no means saying that, uh, that America is, I mean, you know, or anywhere is perfect, but I can tell you, I've been to 58 countries, okay? I've traveled around, I've studied governments across, and I'm going to tell you something, that we are not animals in a zoo. We are not in cages. We have freedom to go. We have the freedom to move. We have all sorts of unlimited freedoms. And I would, I would pay anybody of any amount of money to, to take an army into West Virginia and try to take it over. And it just ain't never going to happen. It ain't never going to work. So I think that there's this very serious check and balance against the federal government um, from having too much power, especially in America. I think, I think that I think your your criticism is very important. But simply saying oh life is better without government okay you don't want government go to somalia that's your current example that's what that's what a society today looks like without any government there is no uh unified voluntarist happy society without a government it doesn't exist no uh, somehow some people are talking there somalia does not have a government it does not there is no working government in somalia
0: oh yes but as we said at the beginning and again it's tricky for people to remember this it means without rulers and there are local warlords and so on, right? So again, the the purpose of of the anarchistic philosophy is to get people to recognize that rulers as a whole are unjust incursions into fundamental human liberties. And okay, bring up Somalia, fine. Because everybody thinks that Somalia is some ironclad argument against voluntary society. Somalia has, by far, the largest uh, communications network I- in the neighborhood. It has the lowest infant mortality, it has one of the highest long- l- lifespans. All of these have vastly increased since the end of the state there. It has had a trajectory of improvement, since the, the government fell that has been astounding and completely not predicted, right? You would expect that uh, the, with the end of the government in Somalia, things would have gotten worse. Absolutely not. Almost every single indicator, I've got a whole series on YouTube about this, almost every single indicator of human well-being has improved in Somalia since the government fell. So saying, oh, well, Somalia, that's the, the anarchy and therefore it doesn't work, simply means that people have not done any research into the empirical reality of life in Somalia.
1: Uh, I mean, that, I mean, I've heard, I've heard many uh, libertarians, anarchists use this Somalia as example. Um, human rights in general has gone down. Uh, uh, women's access in society has gone down uh, since the sort of the chaos that's been created since the 1990s. There may be a lower lower infant mortality rate, but there's also uh, less births. Um.
0: Sorry, are you saying that human rights have declined in Somalia since the last 40 year dictator left?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the life of the, the, the life of, of the average Somalian today is, is, is by far one of the worst, horrible, horrible uh, places to be. I mean, the Somalian's life is not good at what I, I There's no. I mean, you're making an argument to say, ah, Somalia, great example, anarchy. Let's go do it. Come on. You want to go sign up to live there?
0: No, 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 but the point is you, you compare Somalia to the countries around it. You don't compare Somalia to the West. It's still an African country, which of course was raped and pillaged by most of the Western de- quote, democracies throughout much of the 19th century. But you would compare Somalia to how it was under a brutal dictatorship for 40 years that was heavily funded, of course, by Western governments in wonderfully uh, benevolent foreign policy uh, mandates, and you compare its growth uh, since then. It is not a perfect society. What happened was it is not that they've understood something about freedom, they're going government just collapsed. You know, if if a bunch of churches get hit by lightning, that doesn't make everyone a philosophically knowledgeable atheist, just because the churches have collapsed or something like that. Just because the government collapsed does not mean that everybody understands uh, philosophically what it means to not have rulers. But the predictions that Somalia would be a catastrophe uh, have not borne fruit, uh, and there have been some very strong advances uh, relative to to how the other countries have done uh, in Africa, in the neighboring countries in particular.
1: We've got, a, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, maybe we should talk about um, one other thing related to um, uh, sort of this this debate about minarchism, anarchy, whatever. The question, I mean, for the most part, with the exception of failed states like Somalia, um, governments exist and they're going to continue to exist. So my question um, uh, to sort of the anarchist point of view, I mean, how do you, uh, as, as somebody who's a, a statist, if you will, I have ideas about how to, reform government, real ways that have really worked in the past and continue to improve it um, in the hope that knowing that it's never going to get better, uh, or it's, it's never—it's going to get better, but it's never going to be perfect, but we can improve things. We can make small incremental changes to um, make life better. What is? How does the anarchist assume his position, his or her position in the world, when there seems to be government forever?
0: Oh, that's fine. I mean, that's like saying to the abolitionist in the 18th century, well, we've always had slavery, so by golly, we're always going to have slavery. Well, of course, that's not the case, uh, just because an institution has existed forever, whether it's the brutalization of children, the subjugation of women, or the existence of slavery, uh, or feudalism, or, or serfdom, or and you name it. All, all of these institutions can pass away with resolute moral courage. So the idea that it's been always been with us, therefore it always has to be with us, um, it's like driving at high speed forwards only looking in the rear view mirror. You're not going to do anything but crash. The road to a free society, my argument has been, is uh, is very simple and uh, very very difficult. <laughs> the very simple thing is to recognize that the non-aggression principle applies to children first and foremost. The uh, the studies that have come out of brain science over the last 10-15 years are truly astounding that if you raise a child without spanking, if you raise a child without aggression, if you raise a child without violence, the odds of them becoming drug addicts, the odds of them becoming uh, you know destructively promiscuous, the odds of them having children out of wedlock, the odds of them becoming criminals, the odds of them becoming politicians, if I dare repeat myself, the odds of them becoming a uh, violent aggressive or destructive are almost zero i mean it's as close to zero as you can conceivably get uh, in in these sorts of predictions and so the way that you solve problems in society is, you know, we say, well, we all need a government because there's dangerous people in the world. Of course, the dangerous people just go to the government and make everybody's life hell. Is that we, we take the non-aggression principle, we apply it in our own families, we apply it in our own child raising, and we raise children who aren't going to be interested in political power, who aren't going to be threatening their fellow citizens, who are going to grow up speaking the the, the, the language of peace and reason and negotiation. As that begins to spread in society, the need for government, the credibility for government's uh, services will just begin begin to diminish, because there'll be much less dysfunction in society, there'll be not much less desire for people to have power over others, which is another symptom of, of dysfunction and brutalized childhood. I mean, the personal histories of politicians are just rife with child abuse. And so this is how we grow out, how we outgrow the state. It has nothing to do with the revolution, and it's nothing to do with some abstract political argument. It is simply to do with taking the values that I'm sure you and I agree with, non-aggression principle and so on, applying them to that where it counts the most, which is in the raising of our children. Over time, that grows a society that outgrows a state, and where the state will then look to people in that society the way we look at slavery. Like, how on earth could that ever have existed?
1: Well, I mean, I while while I, I, I find you know, your position intriguing. It's that's like trying to stop a train with the BB gun. Um, it, you cannot outgrow the state um, with teaching children how to be, um, you know, voluntary people who don't want to be participating in politics. So uh, the alternative is the, the option A with Stefan is wishful thinking. Um, Hopeless uh, philosophy and uh, idealism. And the alternative is participate with government, try to make government reform, and uh, in the hope that you know it's never going to be perfect, however, we may be able to make proximate solutions to insoluble problems. I don't expect the the people that are in the Stefan camp to necessarily be, be converted uh, to my point of view. However, the idea, the idea is that we need to participate with society and government or else it's going to eat our lunch. That, that's, that's the alternative. So wishful thinking or make proximate solutions to insoluble problems. Those are your choices.
0: I guess if uh, something which is scientifically validated, actionable by just about everyone, and has been proven to raise people who don't want power over others and who are not prone to violence, if that's called wishful thinking, as opposed to more of the same, which is to try and engage in a political process with a government that has grown about 20 fold over the last hundred years and shows no sign even of slowing down, that is wishful thinking. To think that you can somehow outclimb the growth of the state by, what, talking to politicians as if politicians aren't just listening to uh, people who give them money and people they can bribe. To to try and and grapple down the Leviathan as it gets stronger relative to our ineffectualness, that to me is complete wishful thinking. To think that more of the same is going to change the trend of the growth of the state, whereas another approach, which is scientifically proven to produce people who uh, won't be subjugated uh, by the state and who won't have the desire to subjugate others through the state, who won't be threatening their fellow citizens and provoking the desire for a state, you know, uh, this idea that we can, we can manage and wrestle down the Leviathan, it didn't happen 40 years ago when the Libertarian Party started and the government was about 20% the size it is now. You know, if the if a Libertarian movement has not been able to even slow down the acceleration of the size and power of the state over the past 300 years since Adam Smith and the other uh, writers were talking about the need for a small government, 300 years we've tried this political action, 2500 years since the days of Socrates, we've tried to make sure that the government obeys the wishes of the people. Well, if you think that twenty-five hundred and one is going to be the magic year where it all turns around, and you call me a wishful thinker, I am afraid I must respectfully disagree.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I certainly appreciate the criticism of government. I'm no fan of of stupid government. Um, however, the, the the alternative is the alternative of no government is uh, the absence of government. If you want um, to live in a society where there is no government. You um, may want to look at how those societies have functioned It hasn't worked very well. I mean, just, I mean, government is like anything. Government is like marriage. There is no perfect marriage. Government is like um, water. There is no perfectly clean water. There, there is nothing perfect in this world. And think, simply thinking that we can raise our kids in you know the mountains of Nova Scotia and think that somehow that they're going to ne- train them to be nonviolent, somehow that's going to fix the problems. No, we need people to live in community, work together, and try to reform society from inside out.
0: Sure. And, and if you feel that uh, I should look at the history of statelessness and draw my conclusions from that, I would simply ask you to look at the history of the growth just of the US government, aimed to be sustainably designed as the very smallest government in history. It has now grown to the very largest government the world has ever seen. I think that that's probably worth examining the causes of that as well, and I don't think it was a lack of motivation in the population to keep government small. Americans have consistently complained about the size of government. I think it's really important, if you're going to ask me, to look at historical examples, which I've done a lot of, you know, ancient uh, Ireland, uh, Iceland, and Somalia and so on. I think you need to look at the history of the success of political action in keeping governments small. Uh, And uh, governments collapse when they finally have become so cancerous that they destroy the host society and, and kill the economy. They don't uh, get shrunk because of um, voting. At least that seems to be the historical trend. So, I mean, you are the listeners. I mean, just to approach all of this stuff skeptically. We're just, you know, two talking heads making arguments, or at least I'm one of them. And so... Um uh, there seems to be this 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 premise though that uh, political action it 's just axiomatically assumed to work, and I try to approach it like a space alien you know like boo, boo, boo i try to sort of approach it like if I knew nothing about any of this if i if I just had arrived from some other dimension which I guess, arguably, some people think I have and continue to do so. But I like to approach it and say, I'm not going to assume any of this stuff is true. So if somebody comes to me and says, no, 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 you see, political action, political action is the way that we control the size of the state. I would first say, okay, How's that been working out for us? How's that been working out for us? Uh, Don't worry, you can have a small government and keep it small, uh, and I'd say, okay, well, what was the smallest government that was designed? The American government, how's it doing now? Biggest government that history has ever seen with the power to destroy life on the planet many times over, and a national debt that would choke Zeus uh, in his throat. And yet, say, well, uh, that really doesn't conform to the theory that you can have a small government and keep it small. What about some other examples? Well, Japan had a fairly small government after the end of the Second World War. How's it doing? Well, it's got a debt to GDP of about 230 percent. It's had a 20-year recession.
1: Why don't we, uh, Steph, if it's all right with you, why don't we spend a few uh, minutes here and respond to some of our uh, viewers and their comments? What do you think about that?
0: That's great. That's great.
1: Okay. Okay. well, I guess maybe should we just start off right there with uh, uh, Travis. With,
0: uh, Whoever agrees with me, let's talk to them.
1: How do we eliminate sixteen trillion dollars of debt? Well, uh, I don't think that that's possible. Um, I, I think that the debt is grown so large, it's it's virtually impossible to pay off. I think more than likely, there's going to be uh, unification of monetary policy that's going to make that's going to liquidate debt and create a new economic system. I think that's probably. that's that's option A. Option B would be to outgrow the debt. So where the size of our economy makes the debt insignificant, I think that's very unlikely. If you could could read them, I can't see the screen too well from here. I I look at the transitional government as the lack of government. It's it's garbage. It's it's ineffective. It doesn't do anything. So, I mean, we're talking nuances here. for Stefan.
0: Yeah, the, the Somalier argument to an anarchist is like the Stalin argument to an atheist. Well, Stalin was an atheist, and that's why he did all these bad things, and Somalia is anarchy, and that's the example, and it's... Blah.
1: I'm not so sure about that. But, uh, how do you support the use of force to achieve your objectives in society? That's an interesting question. I mean, Stefan, I mean, you would... What you would say, it, do, it, do, it doesn't... I mean, you don't like the idea, is that correct?
0: Well, uh, I would say that, Jake, if you want to sign a contract with an agency that gives it power over you and your children and their children and their children, even though they haven't signed a contract and can go into debt on your behalf and start wars on your behalf and so on, I would strongly urge you not to, but, you know, uh, and I would certainly disagree that you could ever sign your children into obedience to some sort of social contract, but that would be your choice and you would be free to do it. Uh, I would never initiate the use of force against you for following your conscience and, and living your life and organizing your life and your society the best way that you, you believe was the case. I would of course uh, uh, not only expect but demand the same respect in return that you would not initiate the use of force against me for following my conscience and refusing such a contract. The world should be a proliferation of experiments in social living so that the constant best in the same way we have in the free market so that the constantly best ways of dealing with things can be. So yeah, I, I reject the initiation of force as a way of solving problems in society. Force. It's fine for immediate self-defense, uh, you know, shoot a guy in the kneecap, he's running at you with a chainsaw. But um, as far as initiating force to solve social problems, um, I would never inflict that on others. And I damn well demand the same respect in return.
1: Right. Well, I guess I look at it is that if you, um, if, if a force benefits the masses, um, and it doesn't intrude in your day to day living, uh, I think that it's acceptable. So for instance, um, we have police officers that have Around, running around and they're hey you know giving them tickets and that sort of thing. I think that's a very limited intrusion in our day to day lives that keeps more people safe than it not. So I think there's 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 a little trade off, but the little trade off the benefit is uh, outweighs um, the risk that oh. you have with
0: man. But the idea that the U.S. government, which currently has the highest proportion of citizens in jail. Than, than, than even China, and it's approaching the levels of Soviet Russia under Stalin. The idea that the police are somehow really concerned with drunk drivers and speeding tickets is to not even understand where the majority of police budgeting and, and force and and incarceration is is being spent. And there's ways to make sure that drunk drivers aren't on the streets without necessarily giving cops all of this power. I mean, private roads would make sure that they would do it, insurance companies would uh, would uh, <laughs> take you to the cleaners if you ever got into an accident. And those There's tons of different ways. You could have cars where you have to breath, uh, breathe clean to stardom. I mean, there's six million ways that you can prevent this stuff without having to create this Stone Age monopoly of power.
1: Well, true. Um, I mean, there, there, there are private means of controlling it, and, and I'm not against the private means, but however, um, from an American point of view, we trusted uh, a political, uh, sort of a public version in some of these things, and um, that's the social contract that we have con- sort of designed for ourselves. Um, we can, ref- we can reform it. We can change it. We can continue to improve it, make it better as we have. And we don't have cops running around the malls. We have private security guards and that's not necessarily that bad of a thing.
0: Well, that's because the private, that's because the mall is a private property. Unlike all the government owned property where you need all these cops. Anyway, sorry, go on.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Um, there's a question about CISPA and SOPA. Um, I think that both of these are extraordinarily problematic. I think that, um, the, face, the, the government's sort of, in, um, you know, bizarrely um, created a relationship with Facebook and, and Google has is extraordinarily problematic. Um, it violates sort of our day-to-day ability to communicate with each other. At the same time, um, I voluntarily decide to use Facebook and Google. So I think that I'm subjecting myself to that. I don't have to use those things. so. Um, I don't really have a right to complain about this.
0: Steph, could you describe the transition into statelessness from peaceful parenting? Not quickly. Uh, <laughs> not quickly. Um, the, the basic, the, the biological reality is that uh, children who are aggressed against, and this includes spanking, it costs them IQ, it, it actually changes their brain. Uh, their fight or flight uh, responses become much stronger. Their neofrontal cortex, which is the seat of reasoning and the deferral of gratification and the restraint of behavior that is the essence and foundation of maturity, actually shrinks. And, and it's these changes tend to be permanent. You, you can change them later on with a huge amount of work, but they tend to be, for the majority of Population who don't have the time and luxury and middle-class income to to pursue therapy and self-knowledge, uh, they tend to be pretty permanent. And you really, really want to. I'm going to make a strong recommendation here. This guy's been on my show before. He's Dr. Gabor Mate. G A B O R M A T E. Uh, he's written a book called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, which is his work as an addictions counselor and and sorry, not an addictions counselor, an addiction doctor on uh, in Vancouver's mean streets. Uh, he goes into the the, the foundational um, uh, designing and wiring of the brain that occurs from the moment of conception onwards what happens in the womb is incredibly powerful to how the human personality develops and that uh, the addictive personality whether it's addiction to sex or or drugs or or power or you know whatever it is that's going on the addictive personality uh, is is uh, attempting to self-medicate a hole in the brain that's left through neglectful or abusive parenting whether that parenting occurs before or after uh, the birth of the child and so uh, if we in a sense uh, uh, have children uh, you know with good nutrition and calm stress-free moms and they're not subjected to spanking or hitting or violence or rape cause the prevalence of child rape in society is just astonishing then we grow up with uh, people who have little rage, they don't have rage, they don't have impulsiveness, they don't uh, act out, they're not violent, they're not addictive, they're not self-destructive, they're, they don't end up uh, you know, beating up their own kids, they don't end up getting uh, in single-parent households, their marriages are much stronger, blah 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 blah. And so all of this dysfunction which creates a vacuum for state power is no longer there. And so if you have say 98 percent or 97 percent fewer criminals in the world and 97 percent fewer people who want to run for office Is it really that possible to sustain the need for a state in anybody's mind? I'm here to save you from the criminals. It's like, I've never, ever met one. I've never been subjected to one. I don't even know what they are. And uh, it would be like someone um, uh, selling you insurance for your slaves if they ran away right now. You'd be like, I don't really have any, so I don't really need this service. And that's, I think, how we outgrow in a nutshell.
1: Well, that's a very interesting um, and crazy point of view. But however, I'm I'm enthused by your passion by it.
0: (laughs) Well, you can call it crazy, but you you, you do have to look at the facts. This is not just my opinion. This is actual science. So you can call it crazy, but all you're doing is calling empirical validated science crazy, which is itself uh, immature and ridiculous.
1: Currently, I've just had too much fluoride water and aspartame. So I guess I'll continue to stick with that world. That's fine. Uh, Do I support an involuntary system of government? Well, this is a a tough question, because how can you be a statist and uh, logically support um, involuntary system of government? It's sort of a catch-22. If you're a statist, you sort of want everybody to be a part of it, and um, you want people to participate. So... um, I mean, I'll try to make the point about this. It's it, with voluntary, involuntary systems of government. It's like this. I think that I think that society is better with a draft than without a draft because it forces the nation to be in, in what it's doing abroad. If you don't have a draft, then the nation can sort of turn its blind eye and let everyone else go off towards one of the problems we have in America. Um, I'm in favor of um, government mandates with when, which, when in terms of. Uh, policies that you know look after the environment you know that look after the way that we grow our food the way that we do things but they need to be good policies and the problem is in all too often the people that get to decide these uh policies are controlled by people with corporate interests that end up dominating people and not having a good society so it's a catch-22 there need to be reformed society there needs to be um an informed society and we need a society that, that Working together. Um, I guess I don't know how you can do that involuntarily. I guess to just philosophically, I guess you kind of have to be, um, you know, forced to do it. I suppose. We have any more questions? I just made all of Stefan's.
0: Fans vomit with that statement. I think. Yeah, I mean the draft is uh, is 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 worse than slavery in many ways because uh, the draft is you know forcing people to threaten to or actually murder other people and you are forcing them at the point of the gun uh, to do that. It is, um, it, it's kidnapping and enslavement and brutalization and uh, it is, uh, I mean, but this is where status thinking leads to. I mean, this is where you can say, Jack, I mean, you understand when you say that the, the political system is a system that, that, let's say we lived in the same country that you and I have designed for ourselves. I mean, that's completely not even close to the truth. I mean, it's not even delusional. I wish I could even call it delusional because even the Constitution itself was a hidden secret document that was simply imposed upon the population with no consultation. They wouldn't even let the press in to to look at the deliberations. And the idea that you and I have somehow designed the system which indoctrinated us at the age of four or three or two onwards, that we have somehow designed the system, that we're somehow responsible for the system. uh, I just... I can't, I can't see, and and, and to justify pointing guns, I mean, you would actually say to my daughter, you have to come with me, and I'm going to fly you overseas, I'm going to put a gun in your hand and point it at people who've never threatened you, and if you don't do it, I'm going to arrest you, and if you resist arrest, I'm going to put a gun to your neck, pull the trigger, and blow your jugular out, is astoundingly immoral. I mean, to to look at me and say that this is what should be done to my daughter, in in your wonderful world, is unbelievable to, to hear.
1: Stefan, here's a check in the balance specifically related to military service. When we had a draft, we had um, there were escapes for people that were didn't were didn't there were if they were um, Quakers, if they were um, uh, you know didn't want to do it, moral conscience, whatever. You know, there's escapes for people like that. And how what they did was you know people that didn't want to go to World War II, for instance, there was people that you know acted as nurses and and and. Um, in in military hospitals or there were people that um, dealt with the mentally ill. There's all sorts of work that's great work that could be done um, that can be called by the citizens to participate with that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go overseas and put a gun to somebody's head. There is a difference, but there. there is but that
0: some... releases somebody to go overseas and put a gun to someone's head. If I go work in some hospital, that's some other guy who can go overseas and put a gun to somebody's head. That still doesn't take me out of the equation. It doesn't mean that what I'm doing is peaceful now.
1: They're gonna do it anyways. It, so it's better off that the nation's engaged. I mean, my point here is that I mean they're gonna do it anyways. So it's better off that the nation is engaged. And, sorry, sorry. They're gonna do they're gonna do what, they're they're
0: gonna do we... what anyways? What's that? They're, sorry, you said they're going to do it anyways. I'm not sure what you mean. They're going to do what anyways.
1: It's going to send our troops abroad anyways. I mean, there's no way to stop that. I mean, let's, let's just be honest. There's, the only way to stop it is if they didn't have the money to do it. Um, but the, the, the way that the nation's forced to be engaged and criticize it is if it's forced to participate in it. I mean, there's something to be said that the government's force, um, the government's monopoly of power bringing people into the bring into service is a good thing for for the country at large.
0: Yeah, I mean I <laughs> I mean, you you can wave around this collective good all you want, but you're still talking about putting guns to the heads of people and making them do stuff that they virulently do not want to do. And yeah, I I agree with you. If they don't have the money to go to war, they won't go to war, which is why I oppose uh, taxation as a whole. I mean, that's called the reduction of violence. Because you have taxation and you support taxation saying, well, now we need the draft because we have taxation is to escalate the violence. Whereas I'm saying, let's defuse it. Let's not add more guns to the equation and then think that we'd solve the problem.
1: Well, that's, I mean, I'm certainly in favor of of stripping the government of um, stupid funds for some of our foreign adventures. So I guess, all in all, we may disagree about how to, uh, how society should be structured, how government should be structured, but we don't disagree that um, American foreign policy is extraordinarily problematic
0: that is not where we disagree jake it's not where we disagree on how society should be organized that's like saying you and i disagree on whether we should have more airtime minutes or more cell data in our cell phone plans uh, you and i in a free society can entirely disagree about how society should be uh, should be organized and that would be perfectly fine We disagree on whether it is morally acceptable to initiate the use of force against the peaceful. That is where we disagree. It is a moral line. It is not a question of yin versus yang or red versus blue. It is an ethical question. I will not cross that line and support the initiation of force against the peaceful. You are willing to catapult yourself across that line, extremely well armed, and land in ninja cat poses and point guns at everyone you think should do the right thing according to your plan. There is a moral distinction. I will not let you get off the hook by thinking this is some kind of dist- a, a, a taste difference or a difference in how we approach things. It is a moral difference. You wish to use the, the to initiate force against the peaceful to get what you want or to support the society you think is right. I reject that, and you may be fine with that. But I just want to be real clear to the audience that this is the difference. It is not a difference of taste. It is a difference of ethics.
1: Um, well, I. It, it, uh, before we get into ethics, there has to be a foundational worldview. Our worldview is different. It's not about, our ethics is different. You, your worldview is that people can live in society voluntarily and be peaceful amongst each other with sort of the right thought process and this sort of thing. I'm under the impression that no matter whether you have a government or you don't have a government, people are inherently flawed and they're going to, at some way, shape or form, use force against one each other. And there needs to be checks and balances in society to make sure that doesn't happen. And so where I'm willing to use the government to step in is to create that that check and balance.
0: Which uh, the government will be run by the exact same flawed people who want to use violence to get their way. And how that solves the goddamn problem has always been beyond me how you solve a problem called people are bad and want to use violence by creating a monopoly on force populated entirely by people that you say are bad and want to use violence to get their way is not solving the problem and uh, you know i've yet to meet minarchists who will accept this but it is a basic fact that it's really hard for people to get their their head around you can't create some fictional entity called the government populated by angels if 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 humanity is really good or has the potential to be really good great we don't need it if if, if government is if if humanity is really bad you can't have it because they'll just use that it's it's the, the ring from lord of the rings you there's no bar there, there's there's no virtue who, who can overcome its power this is what violence does it corrupts human nature
1: I and I, I see i don't see it as the world is ever going to be perfect but i say that if with the government can create proximate solutions to insoluble problems these problems that we have in our world can never be totally fixed but we can find proximate solutions and i think government has a better um, alternative than um that my worldview is that government, the absence of government, creates more problems than government by itself.
0: And you are perfectly free to have that opinion. You just are not perfectly free to initiate force against me for differing on that opinion. If you want to have that opinion, fine. I would not use force against you. But that's what I need from people that I have debates with. And if that's not granted, then really I'm not going to even pretend that there is a debate. Because, the, I mean, you're, you're, you're pretending to have a debate, but basically you're just saying, Steph, well, if you disagree with me, I'm going to force you anyway. So that's not a debate, right?
1: Well, I would say that you're in Canada and me using force against you would create an international incident. So I will avoid that.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I think we've, uh, we've reached, uh, the end of, uh, the road of our conversation. Uh, I really want to thank the people who've been listening in and it was a very challenging and stimulating, uh, interaction to say the least. And, uh, I hope that people found it illuminating.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, Stefan, I totally disagree with you, but I really respect you and your audience. Um, so I just want to thank you for your time and, uh, the guys at Liberty chat for putting this together. It was, uh, it was great.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, Ian. We really appreciate it. See you guys.